Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we open up and listen to God's Word together. Today's message is part six in Pastor DJ Ritchie's Sunday morning series on Elijah. This message was given on February 21st, 2021. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. When you do, you will receive a notification each time you post a new message and will always be up to date. We hope this encourages you in your relationship with Christ, and if it does, we would love to connect with you in person sometime. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. In just a moment, we're going to go back to 1 Kings and continue our study on the God of Elijah. But first, we're going to stop in 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. There is no greater symbol of the love of God than the cross of Jesus Christ. But there is no greater symbol of the wrath of God than that same cross of Jesus Christ. It is in the cross that we see both the extravagant love of God and the hatred of sin that God holds. He hates sin so much that He would pour out His wrath on His only begotten Son. That the price of sin might be paid. Evil must and will be judged. Now in John chapter 3, Jesus said that He would be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He went on to say that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth is not condemned. Now I wish that Jesus had stopped there. And there are many preachers who do stop there when they present the Gospel. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus says, He that believes is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation. Literally, this is the verdict. Who gives a verdict, by the way? The judge, right? The judge delivers the verdict, and Jesus said this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I would love to just be able to talk to you about the love of God and the grace of God, but understand that if we don't talk about the wrath of God and the punishment of God, the love of God and the grace of God really aren't that important. What makes grace so amazing is that our sin is so wicked. And we need to understand and see the wickedness of our sin so that, not that we can wallow in our sin and and wallow in guilt and shame, but so that we can understand just how awesome the grace of Jesus Christ is. And what it means that He, while we were yet sinners, died for us. And so we must talk both about the love and grace of God and... The wrath of God. Now, here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, both which I stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance. He's saying, listen, I'm telling you things you already know, the things that I've already taught you, but you need to be reminded. And if they need to be reminded, obviously he's writing to us as well, we need to be reminded that ye may be mindful, verse 2, of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. He's saying, we need to listen to the things that the prophets said. We're going to look at a few messages of some prophets today. And even though those messages that we'll see in a few minutes weren't given specifically to us or about us, we know that everything in the Scriptures is written for us. And there are things that we can learn and apply to our own lives. The commandment of us, the apostles, 
of the Lord and Savior. He's saying, listen, we're, we're carrying on the tradition of the prophets. We're giving you commandments as well. In verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of this creation. For in this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. You say, well, the universe, if you look out at the universe, the universe looks like it's billions and billions of years old. God says, uh, no, I spoke it that way. I stretched the heavens out. I spoke the heavens into existence, and then I stretched them out. Didn't take billions of years for God to do that. But even Christians are willfully ignorant of this. Notice also verse 5, they willfully ignorant by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in soul, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. <coughs> but, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Nevertheless, God says there are many who will perish because they have not received the free gift of salvation purchased for them by Jesus Christ on the cross. And even in the church today, we hear mockery of the flood of Noah, just as Peter prophesied. Peter said in the last days, even within the church, if you were to step back into chapter 2 of 2 Peter, you'd see that he's specifically talking here about false teachers in the church. He's not just talking about what other religions teach or what the atheists teach. He's talking about things in the last days that would be prevalent in the church. And he says, even in the church, there's going to become... Uh, this time, there's going to come this time when they're scoffing concerning the flood of Noah. Prophecy fulfilled as we look at what many Christians uh, falsely believe today, despite the evidence all around us of a global flood. We could look off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Japan, around the world, evidence that there are cities and monoliths that are thousands of feet underwater, under the ocean. Obviously, the water wasn't there when they were built. People used those buildings. People worshipped at those monoliths. And yet now they are covered by water. God will always judge sin. Evil can be judged. Evil will be judged. Evil must be judged. And so we say, well then why doesn't God judge it as we look around in the world today and we see the evil that continues to perpetuate itself. We say, God, why aren't you stepping in? Why aren't you judging? Well, as we'll see in just a few minutes, God does judge sin, but here God tells us in verse 9 that the Lord is not slack, but He is being patient with sinners. Aren't you glad that God's patient with you? Aren't you glad that God was patient with you? Some of you have, I was saved as a child, some of you have a long history before you became a Christian. But all of us, even those of us who have been saved, we have a history of, of needing God's grace in our life because none of us are sinless. None of us are without need of, of grace and without need of Christ and need of the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of you wonder why I drink so much water. This is why I drink so much water. Let me take you back to Malachi chapter 2 as we head back to the New Testament. The verse will be up here on the screen. Head back to the Old Testament, excuse me. Uh, the verse will be up on the screen. Malachi is a record of some of the complaints that God has with the nation of Israel. And here's one of the complaints that God has. One of the issues that God brings. We have our 
issues that we bring to God. God, why don't you this? Why don't you that? God has some issues as well. And Malachi reveals some of those. And here's one of the Malachi 2.17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, just stop there for a moment. Infinitely powerful God. Amazing grace. Amazing patience. And yet, even God says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. A few weeks ago, my son heard Grover on Sesame Street say, enough is enough. And so then for about a week, whenever he'd get frustrated with daddy, he'd say, enough is enough. (laughs) He doesn't realize sometimes that he doesn't get to be the one to say enough is enough. Daddy sometimes is the one, if I'm not saying it, I'm thinking it, enough is enough. So here God says, enough is enough. You've wearied the Lord with your words. And you say, well, where have we wearied him? How could, I, how could we possibly weary God? Here's what he says. When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? God says there are two responses to the patience of God. When God is being patient with with the wicked. When God is extending grace to the wicked. And we don't see Him judge. There are two responses that we have, both of which anger God. Both of which exasperate Him. On the one hand, there are those who say, well, God's not judging the sin, so He must not care. It must be okay with Him. I'm getting away with it. I'm using that credit card all over town and I haven't had to pay a dime yet. Must be free. Free money. That angers God. When we say evil is good because God hasn't disciplined it yet, God hasn't judged it yet, God said that angers me. But there's another side of this too. Those of us, when we get frustrated and we say, God, are you not going to judge? God, look at all this evil. Are you not going to judge? God says, that frustrates me too. That wearies me as well. Do you not have an entire history of humanity to see that I do judge evil? The flood of Noah. My wrath poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, which the epistle of Jude says is an example to us of that, the fact that God does judge sin. And so we don't know when God's judgment is coming. Some sin will not get judged until we stand before the Lord. But many times God does judge in this life, in this world. Judgment is coming. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16, as we continue and, yes, even extend this study on the God of Elijah. Now, as I have told you, as we look at Elijah, Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh, or Yahweh is my God. And the story of Elijah is really not about Elijah. It's really about the God of Elijah. Nowhere is that going to be more obvious during this study than today, because Elijah is not even in 1 Kings chapter 20, which we'll be in in just a second. Even in Elijah's own story, Elijah disappears because Elijah is not the main character in his own story. God is. And what I need to remember is I'm not the own character. I'm not the main character in my own story. God is. God is the central character. What does God have to say about himself? That's what we want to consider this morning as we see that Elijah has been given a mission. We talked about that last week. Elijah's been given a mission to train Elisha after he anoints a new king for Syria and a new king for Israel. God is going to get him focused on training someone else. And Elijah's going to step out of the story for a chapter and a half. And the focus is going to be on the God of Ahab. And so we're going to spend a few weeks talking not about the 
provision of God per se, or the perplexity of God, or, the, or even the power of God, although we will see all of those things. We're not going to focus on the plan of God, although we will see God's plan at work. But we're going to spend a few weeks zeroing in on the punishment of God. And this morning we're going to talk about some of the sins of Ahab. Now, remember that Elijah has given a message to Ahab and to Israel. He has had this great victory on Mount Carmel over the prophets of Baal. God has been speaking to Ahab. God has been speaking to Israel. They've had three and a half years of famine and drought. Then God sent fire from heaven. Then God sent a deluge of rain from heaven. And many, back in in chapter 18, many repented. There was a great localized revival But Ahab hadn't repented. And as we get to 1 Kings chapter 20, we're going to see God begins to punish the sins of Ahab. But I want to start in chapter 16, and I want us to look, first of all, at Ahab's wicked reign, because I want you to understand what exactly it is that God is punishing. Before we look at the punishment that is coming, I want you to understand why the punishment is coming. And so uh, we're not going to go all the way back into the story The story of Ahab really begins with his father, Omri. There was a conspiracy at that time. Omri was uh, uh, one of the military rulers, and there was a very wicked king, and there was another military ruler who uh, seized power and assassinated the king. And when it came out that there was this conspiracy to, to take over the throne and this military leader had assumed power, a lot of the people said, no, we don't like, we, this is horrible. We don't want to serve a traitor. And so they came around and they, they chose Omri, to be the next king, and there was a civil war, and and would want to spend a lot of time on that, but uh, Ahab was raised in a military home, but then also a king's home for 12 years. His father was king, and his father was a wicked king. Uh, My dad likes to say that uh, every Christian, or everyone, I should say, who is raised in a Christian family, or who is part of a Christian family, is either beginning a spiritual legacy, continuing a spiritual legacy, or ending a spiritual legacy. For Abraham, Abraham began a spiritual legacy. He established a Christian home. His father was an idol worshiper. Isaac and Jacob continued a spiritual legacy. Joseph continued a spiritual legacy. But Esau ended a spiritual legacy. Even though he was raised in a God-fearing home, he turned away from the God of his father. Some of us here, we are the first Christian in our family. Many of us here, we are either going to continue the legacy that our parents handed down to us, or we are going to end it. And that's a decision that we'll make. But the same is true for those who are not saved and, or, or grew up in a, a family that was pagan, that wasn't, Christian, or wasn't a Christian family. They have a choice to make as well, either to continue a pagan legacy or end it. Ahab chose to continue it. And so we see in verse 29, this son of a wicked king, Ahab, uh, 1 Kings 16 29, in the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. For 22 years, God was patient with Ahab. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, which is a way of saying, uh, some of you have maybe a paraphrase or a translation that says that he raised up an Asherah pole. Uh, this is the worship of Baal and Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his day... Did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho? He laid the foundation thereof in 
Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof, and his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. We'll talk about that in just a second. But let me just unpack some of these sins that made Ahab's sin greater in God's eyes than his fathers and, and all who had come before him. Number one, he continued in the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam. Now, I know that's a little hard to read, so let me just uh, highlight some things about the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first king of the divided nation. Remember, Solomon reigned and Solomon sinned, and because of Solomon's sin, God said, I'm going to divide the kingdom, but because of your father David, I'm going to wait and I'm going to divide it, not in your day, but in your son's day. And so Solomon then, we saw in the study of Ecclesiastes, Solomon repented and turned back to God, but there was still a consequence. And, and yes, in the days of his son Rehoboam, the kingdom was divided. And so Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes went with Jeroboam. And when Jeroboam established a kingdom, he didn't want his people to go down to Judah to worship in Jerusalem at the temple where God commanded them to worship because he was afraid if people kept going down to Jerusalem to worship that their hearts would turn away from him and that they would go back to serving the king of Judah. So, he decided to establish two new places of worship and he made two golden calves. And he set them up in these two places and he established a new priesthood that wasn't, wasn't the priesthood of the Levites. And he said, this here is a symbol of your God. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, Israel. These are the gods. Worship these golden calves. Worship these gods. And you don't need to worship. Hey, if you want to worship the God down in Jerusalem, that's, that's great. That's, that's tradition. And, and certainly you can do that. But, but understand that it is these gods who brought you out of Egypt. So worship them as well. And he turned the heart of Israel to idolatry. He attributed the work of God to demons by saying that these false gods, who the Bible says are demonic spirits, were the ones who brought them out. He created a substitute priesthood. He created substitute places of worship. And he rejected the promise of God because God told Jeroboam, if you will walk in my ways... I will bless you. And Jeroboam said, nah, that's all right. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. He rejected God's blessing. Ahab continued in these same sins. And he also, the text tells us, married Jezebel. He married a wicked woman. Apparently he was all about this marriage. This wasn't just an arranged marriage, something that his dad concocted, he committed himself to marry a wicked, wicked woman who later on we're going to find out in 1 Kings stirred up his wickedness, encouraged his wickedness. He was more of a sinner because of his marriage than he would have been without her. And some of us like to surround ourselves with people who stir up our wickedness. And some of you have a relationship outside of your family that needs to end today. Some of you have a relate. You need to nip it in the bud, as Barney would say. Barney Fife. So, he made a choice. He brought this woman into his family. He married her. She was a wicked woman. And he allowed her, so he was responsible because he was the king, he allowed her to execute the prophets of God. We have been, by God's grace, uh, largely in America, we have been protected from the fear of martyrdom. Now, we have a security team here. I'm thankful for that. Uh, if you ever hear me yell, hit the deck, then get down. Okay, we have a plan in place in case... Somebody would come into the building. Uh, that has happened in our country where uh, men of God have uh, been preaching the Word of God and have been assassinated because of it. But that's not something that I live in fear of. 
But in these days, a prophet of God, a, a, and I'm not saying I'm a prophet, I'm just a, I'm just a preacher. I'm not the, a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm just a, a preacher and a son of a preacher. But these men of God, these prophets had to live in reality that their lives were at stake for what they were preaching. They weren't just afraid of getting fined. They weren't just afraid of getting censored off of social media. They were living in danger of their own lives because of Jezebel. Ahab was responsible for that. He turned the heart of Israel to the worship of Baal and Asherah. This was a specific God and goddess that for whatever reason, and and maybe we'll go into this in detail at some other time, but all idolatry is wicked. But there was something about the worship of Baal and Asherah that God found particularly repulsive. The worship of the mother and son. The worship of the the in some stories the brother and sister who became husband and wife depending on the mythology that you're following and and they're, one of the issues with trying to interpret mythology is that it because it's a lie it evolved and and the stories about the gods and goddesses keeps changing but we can uh, attribute these stories. Uh, there's, there likely is the, the parallel in Egypt of the worship of Osiris, who became Horus, reincarnated as Horus, uh, and Isis. Osiris and Isis in the uh, mythology were married. Osi- Osiris was killed um, without going into the rather X-rated version of the mythology. Isis uh, then has a child named Horus, which is the reincarnation of her husband. And so she, becomes, she gives birth to her husband. It's, it's really twisted as, as much mythology is. And there seems to be some parallels between the worship of Osiris and Isis and the worship of Baal and Asherah. Uh, may also uh, be related to the worship of Tammuz and Ishtar, uh, the queen of heaven. This idea of, of praying to a queen of heaven is repulsive to God, especially repulsive to God. It, it goes back to Baal and Asherah worship. And so without going into all of that mythology, uh, just understand that this was a very repugnant type of idolatry that uh, Ahab had turned Israel towards. He cultivated a culture of defiance towards God's Word. And that's given to us here in verses um, in verse 34, where we're told about this man who rebuilt the city of Jericho. Now, why was this defined of God's word? Because through Joshua, God had declared that this city was never to be rebuilt on fear of the death of a child. God said through Joshua, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth, up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. God said, whoever rebuilds this city, I'm going to take your children from you. And this man said, I'll pay my children. I'm going to defy you, God. And even after the death of his firstborn in fulfillment of this judgment, he went on and continued to build the city at the expense of his secondborn. That attitude of defiance against God, even while you're suffering the judgment of God, the writer here attributes to the reign of Ahab. He cultivated that. We see in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this was the kind of culture Ahab was creating here. And and here's the last thing to sum up the last few chapters that we've spent uh, uh, looking at in in January and, and last week. He refused to repent after repeated rebukes from the Lord. God sent him a rebuke. He refused. God sent him Elijah. He ignored him. God sent three years of famine. He ignored the fact that 
there was no rain coming. And he was worshiping the God of the harvest who was supposed to send him the rain for three and a half years. And Baal didn't show up. And then he sees this incredible event on Mount Carmel. He's an eyewitness. He's right there when Elijah prays to God and God responds by sending fire down from heaven. And he's right there on Mount Carmel when Elijah prays to God and God sends a deluge of rain and he's heading back in his chariot to the city and and it's raining so hard that he's having a hard time even getting the chariot back to the city. And yet, he doesn't repent. That's the description that God gives us of Ahab's wicked reign. And so that brings us to Ahab's wicked enemy in 1 Kings chapter 20. So turn a few pages with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to summarize a lot of this account for sake of time this morning. I'd encourage you to read this whole chapter this afternoon or sometime this week. But we're going to see, because of his repeated refusal to repent of all this wickedness, even after God sent him Elijah the prophet, that God is going to raise up an enemy. And through this enemy, he's going to remind Ahab and Israel of his incredible power. Now, when we go through this chapter together, we're going to see that God sends three different prophets to Ahab. Three different prophets. But as I've already told you this morning, Elijah is not one of them. And so before we look at chapter 20, I want to talk for just a moment about the missing prophet. The missing prophetic witness. See, Ahab had hardened his heart against God for years. And he'd hardened his heart against God's messenger, Elijah, who in chapter 21, we will find out next week, he considered his personal enemy. He despised God's messenger. Now remember, a few weeks ago we saw that Elijah on on Mount Horeb, when he went to where God delivered the commandments and and the law of Moses to Moses, he went there to to have, uh, have 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 it out with God. He was frustrated, he was angry, and he wanted to give God a piece of his mind. And God was amazingly patient with him. He didn't scorch him. From the, from the planet Earth, like I might have been tempted to. Thank, thank God I'm not God. But Elijah was mistaken about one main thing. He, two, two, really two main things. He was mistaken in thinking that God wasn't working. That was the big one. But then the second mistake that Elijah made was in thinking he was the only one going through what he was going through. He said, I'm the only prophet left. And so God is going to show Elijah something. And he's going to show us something, and he's going to show Ahab something. He's going to show us that God doesn't just have one servant. God's not dependent on any one of us to do what he wants to do. Now, I pray that God has us here for decades. I pray that this is where, uh, this is where uh, Gigi and I get to plant our flag. This is where I grew up. I would love it if God has us here, uh, and I don't see any reason why he won't. Have us here for decades. I'd love to be able to, in you know, 25 years from now, uh, start to think about retiring while I'm still your pastor. That's, that's my prayer. But I, I, I need to be realistic and, and say, listen, I don't have tomorrow guaranteed. I don't even have today guaranteed. And the mission of Memorial Heights Baptist Church does not depend on me. It doesn't depend on any of us. God's plan is not dependent on any one of his servants. Even, even, even Moses... Even Moses, remember, when he accepted God's call, I think it was back in Exodus chapter 4, and he hadn't circumcised his son, and God was going to strike Moses down because he hadn't circumcised his son, and it was Moses' wife who stepped in and saved the day. Thank God for our godly wives who help us out when we make some mistakes, which for Uh, for myself is more frequently than I would like. But God is going to show Elijah, I've got more messengers. You're not the only prophet that I use. God's going to show Ahab, hey, you don't want to hear from my number one prophet? I'll send you some no-name prophets. I'm still going to work. I'm still going to speak to you. 
whether you ignore my main prophet or not. And so, God is going to speak through these other prophets. Now, let me just say two quick things about that before we really dig into this account. Number one, respond to God's rebuke. When God rebukes you, when you hear a message, whether it's from this pulpit or from a family member who shares something with you, when you hear the Holy Spirit convicting you with His Word, respond. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't harden your heart to the conviction of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The person who says, I have nothing to change, or I'm not going to change, or I can't change, I have nothing to learn, God says, you are a fool. I told Gigi in our house that when we're talking about people who are living in sin, uh, there are some words that we shouldn't use to describe them, but we are allowed to use the word fool because that's God's word. <laughs> and when God call, if God says that this kind of behavior is the behavior of a fool, then we are allowed to use that word. Proverbs 15 Verse 32, he that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. Hebrews 3 says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, not just weekly, not just on Sundays, but daily exhort one another while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We need to have interaction with other believers daily. Now we gather weekly. We gather several times a week. But we need to make sure that we are interacting with other other believers daily so that we are responding to God's rebukes. And the second thing it tells us is that we need to focus on the task at hand, the task that God has given to us committing everything that we do to Christ. Elijah had another mission at this time in his life. His mission had become, for a season, the training of Elisha. That's what Elijah was supposed to do. And he needed to be focused on that. And while his heart was to see the nation changed, while his heart was to be about this mission that he had been so integral in, God's heart for Elijah was to prepare the next one, to prepare the next prophet, to prepare the next guy. And God is showing Elijah, hey, you need to stay focused on where I've called you. I'm going to bring you back on the scene, Elijah. Now You're going to be part of this process again. But for right now, you need to focus on the task at hand. Uh, We saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. I know some of you aren't where you want to be right now. I know you're not doing what you want to do. But wherever God has you, focus on that. Do that. Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries who was martyred by the Alka Indians, said, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. For Elijah, that was training Elisha until God said otherwise. So wherever God has you focused, I know it may not be where you want to be focused right now, but be all there. Focus on that. God has others that He can work through. God doesn't depend on any one of us. So with that in mind, God sends a prophetic witness that is not Elijah to King Ahab. There is this great threat from the Syrian king and he he amasses this huge coalition, this huge, massive coalition against Israel, who has been weakened by three and a half years of famine. They are in a vulnerable position. Three and a half years of no rain. Their resources depleted. They're vulnerable. God sends this coalition of 33 different kings, 33 different armies that come against him. And at first, 
Ahab says, hey, I'm not even going to try to fight this. You have whatever you want. You want my wives? You can have them. You want my gold? You can have it. And then when the evil king heard that he was going to be that easy to conquer, he said, well, I'm going to increase my demands. I'm going to take everything. And Ahab said, well, we're not going to go there. So then God sends him this prophet, this first prophetic witness. Look at verse 13. And it was so, uh, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 13. And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So why is God going to bail out Ahab? He wants to show that he is God. He wants to show Ahab, he wants to show us that God is not just the God of Israel, that God is the God of all nations, that God doesn't just hold the king of Israel in his hand, that God holds the power of all kings in his hand, and he is greater than all of them combined. And so there's this incredible victory that ensues where God does this amazing thing in Even for this wicked king in a nation of Israel that is living in wickedness, God still in His mercy and His grace gives them victory over this massive army. And then the prophet returns to Ahab. In verse 22, the prophet came to the king of Israel again and said unto him, Go strengthen thyself and mark and see what thou doest, for at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up against thee. Again, that there's there's, the battle's not over. The king of Syria is going to come back and attack again. So we have this first prophetic witness showing God's power, showing God's grace, even to this incredibly wicked king. And then we see a second prophetic witness where God again demonstrates his support superiority because just as God prophesied, the king of Syria comes back. Now, why would the king of Syria, after being soundly defeated, think that he could overcome the nation of Israel a second time. Well, listen to what it says in verse 23. The servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing. Take the king away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. And so he says, okay, well, the only reason they beat us the first time was because their gods are the gods of the hills. And so, here's God's response to that. Verse 28, To Ahab there came a man of God, spake unto the king of Israel, and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he's not the God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So again, even after years of defiance, God is still extending grace to Ahab. He's still extending grace to Israel. And he says, I'm going to show everybody here that I'm not just the God of the mountains. I'm the God of the valleys. I'm the God of the whole place. I made it all. I rule it all. And so I don't know whatever mountain you're facing today, God is the God of that mountain. I don't know whatever valley you're walking through today, but God is the God of that valley. God's the God of all of it. And he will get us through anything that he wants to get us through. Are you trusting him? Ahab gets another lesson in the power and grace of God. So we have this another, we have this an, uh, another incredible victory as the prophet predicted. But, but here's how Ahab responds to the victory. The king of Syria is soundly defeated. He decides, you know what? I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of Ahab. Because I've heard these kings of Israel, they're pretty soft. They're pretty, um, pretty easy to, to deal with uh, politically. They don't really take it out on their enemies. So I'm, I'm going to appeal to him. And so, verse 32, they girded sackcloth on their loins, put robes on their heads, came to the king of Israel and said, thy servant Ben-Hadad, who's the the king of Syria, he says, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, is he yet alive? He's my brother. 
Now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go ye bring him. Then Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad came forth to him and caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, The cities which uh, my father took from thy father I'll restore. Thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. So God gives Ahab incredible victory. And how does Ahab respond? Does he repent of his sin? No, he multiplies his sin. He multiplies his sin by making an unholy covenant with evil. God had planned to use Israel to judge Syria and Ahab planned to use Israel to bless Syria. This king who had attacked him twice, he decided to give mercy and he makes a wicked covenant with the king of Syria. And so what does God do? He sends a third prophetic witness, a third nameless prophet to Ahab. But this prophet prophet isn't coming to declare victory to Ahab. He's coming to declare God's judgment. This is a very unusual story. Let me read it to you and then we'll make a few comments on why God does this. But notice verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said unto his neighbor, this is somebody who was another one of the prophets, in the word of the Lord, so he's speaking authoritatively from God. He's speaking prophetically. It's clear, apparently, to this other neighbor who is also a prophet that he is speaking the word of God to him. And the the certain man says, smite me, I pray thee. And the man refused to smite him. He says, strike me, hurt me. And the guy said, "I'm I'm not hurting you. Why would I do such a thing? I don't believe in violence. Verse 36, then he said unto him, because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as thou art departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. Then he found another man and said, smite me, I pray thee. And the man did smite him. He smote him so that he, in smiting, he wounded him. He said, you want me to hurt you? God's commanding me to hurt you? Well, I... I'm going to really hurt you if it's God's command. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with ashes upon his face. And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king and said, Thy servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me and said, Keep this man. In other words, he captured somebody who was supposed to watch this prisoner. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life. Or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. So he says, listen, I'm going to put you in charge of guarding this prisoner. If he escapes, you're either going to have to pay me or you're going to be dead. And as the servant was busy here and there, he says, listen, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. I I got distracted from my mission. He was gone. The king of Israel said unto him, so shall thy judgment be thyself has decided it. So Ahab says, all right, you said it your own self. You're going to pay the gold or the silver? You're going, to pay, you're going to make the payment or you're going to pay with your blood. And as soon as Ahab said that, he hasted and took the ashes from his face and the king of Israel discerned him that he was of the prophets. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life. And thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased and came to Samaria. I believe that the prophet's disguise here is symbolic of something. I believe it's symbolic of our attempts to disguise our disobedience. We cloak ourselves to try to hide from God our disobedience. It's akin to what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned. And they heard God walking in the garden and they hid themselves from God. Not very successfully. Because God isn't impressed with our disguises. 
I may see you out in public. I, I saw somebody uh, just yesterday, didn't recognize them at first because of the mask. Uh, also, if I'm not wearing my glasses, my, I, I'm, I have passed my driver's test, all right? My eyes are good enough to drive, but, but I don't have 20-20 anymore. So if I don't recognize you right away, just give me a little grace. But God recognizes whatever mask we're wearing, God recognizes us. Whatever way we're cloaking ourselves, God recognizes. And so let me just highlight just a few things very quickly that we try to use to cloak our sin. Here's what Ahab used. Number one, the cloak of kindness. The cloak of kindness. Now, God has called us to be meek and kind. We are to be kind. Be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. But meekness is not weakness. God has not called us to be weak and pretend that we're being meek. The cloak of kindness can hide a passive-aggressive, non-confrontational spirit that doesn't want to deal with sin, that doesn't want to confront sin, that doesn't want to speak anything that's going to offend anybody and so we think we're being kind, but really we're, we're being disobedient. Ahab acted kind. I don't want to go to war with, the, with, this, with this country. I don't want to kill their king and then have to go into this extended war with Syria. You know, I'll just make, I'll just make peace with them. I'll get some of my cities back. It'll be financially profitable for me. It'll be a lot easier. And look, I'll come off looking like this wonderful, nice guy. Jesus is kind, but Jesus is strong. Jesus is kind, but Jesus is strong. He's full of grace, but he's also full of truth, John tells us, John chapter 1. It's not either or with Jesus. It's not kindness or strength. It's kindness through strength. And there is a time to stand up to evil. There is a time to speak the truth in love. There is a time, 1 Corinthians 16 says, guys, to act like men and to stand up for something and to confront sin and to speak the truth in love. Ahab was not willing to do the hard thing. The prophet who heard from another prophet God's word that said, hey, you need to strike me. He's like, I'm not going to do something that, that violent. Why would I hurt you? Because God told you to. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. Find somebody else. And the first prophet said, well, I guess I'm going to have to find somebody else because uh, God just told me he's going to send a lion. You want to hide behind kindness and meekness when God has told you to do something? You want to use that as an excuse not to do it? Don't wear the cloak of kindness. Number two, don't wear the cloak of ignorance. I didn't know. I didn't know God wanted me to kill that king. Ahab should have known. Ahab had access to all these prophets. He's got three of them that God sent to him. Why didn't he seek the Lord? God, what do you want me to do? God had already declared this king was supposed to die. Well, I didn't know. Understand, you are not only accountable for what you do know, you're accountable for what you could know. Leviticus uh, chapter 5 says, if a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he wist it not, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. See, God says to the nation of Israel, I've given you the commandments. You're responsible for these commandments whether you read them or not. You're responsible for these commandments whether you pay attention to them or not. You don't get to say, well, I didn't know that was in there. You are responsible. For this book. Well, I didn't know the Bible said that. Well, why didn't you know? If you've only been saved for a few weeks, you might have a good, good argument. Some of you have been saved 50, 60 years, and you don't know what's in this book. God's going to hold you accountable for that. And those of us who are in positions of authority to teach this, God's going to hold us extra accountable. That brings us to the third cloak, the cloak of authority. Well, I'm, I'm in charge, so I don't have to do it. I can get somebody else to do it, right? I'm the king. Why do I have to listen? Ahab thought. I can do what I want. I'm the king. This prophet who refused to do God's will, hey, I'm a prophet. 
If God wanted me to do that, he would just speak to me directly. He wouldn't speak through you. I'm a prophet. I don't have to, I don't have to hit you. I don't have to obey God's word. God holds us more accountable. Don't hide behind the cloak of authority. Number four, don't hide behind the cloak of unity. Oh, everybody wants to talk about unity. Let's unify. Let's get together. We are the world. We are the children. I'm dating myself. That's an old song. Some of you are going, what is that? Unity. I'm going to unify with Syria. I'm going to end this war. Don't hide behind the cloak of unity. Don't unify with those you're not supposed to unify with. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, James 4.4 4 says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Friend, there are people that you are not allowed to unify with. Don't use unity as a cloak for your disobedience because you don't want to stand up for what's right and you don't want to stand up for truth and you don't want to offend anybody. That's the path of Ahab. The cloak of kindness, of ignorance, of authority, of unity. And notice here as we close, we'll pick up here next week, the cloak of regret. Ahab went home, we're told, sad at God's judgment. He was heavy. He was displeased, but he wasn't repentant. Hear a message. I've been there. Felt convicted. Preacher said something. You're at church camp. You hear a message. You get convicted. You feel that remorse. But remorse without repentance is self-righteous. It's deceptive. It's a cloak. Godly sorrow, Paul says, leads to repentance. We must repent. Understand, sin always carries a consequence. And so, some of you are here today, and there's something going on in your life. You need to repent of it now. You need to deal with it now. It's not enough to just feel sorry. You've got to take it to Jesus. You've got to repent. And we're going to give you an opportunity in just a moment. If you need to come and talk to one of our deacons or one of our deacons' wives or my wife, if you need to come and just pray at the altar, if you just need to pray where you are while we, while we close in a hymn in just a moment. Don't leave here without dealing with whatever God is convicting you of. Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online this morning. You've never trusted in Christ. God loves you. He gave Jesus Christ to die for your sin. He rose Him from the dead. You can be forgiven by grace. All you have to do is believe by faith and place your faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. And all of us need to trust in Jesus. Don't be like Ahab. Hiding your sin behind kindness and unity, feeling guilty, but not dealing with anything. Deal with it today. Father, we love you and thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ where you have shown us not only your incredible love for us, but your punishment of sin, your wrath poured out on your son because of sin. And God, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Father, for those of us who are your children, we have the promise that you, because you love us, you will discipline us. You will discipline the sin. And so, Father, if there's something this morning that is in our hearts and our minds that your spirit is bringing conviction of, God, I pray this would be the day that we would give it to you, that we would turn from our sin and claim that amazing grace that can take blackest stain on our soul and wash it as white as snow because of the amazing grace in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, that wraps up today's message. We hope this has made an impact on your life and encourages you to follow and reflect Jesus daily. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen on and share it with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Wednesday nights at 6.45, or give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.